Amen. Um, please take a seat. Very nice to see you all. Um, thanks, Josh and the band. Um, welcome, everyone. If you don't know me, my name is Ed, and I lead the church with my wife, Hannah. You're very welcome here. This is uh, the final um, installment of a series on faith in the Gospel of Luke. And today we're looking at uh, faith and idols. Oh, yeah. So let me read a very famous interaction Jesus has in Luke chapter 18, and this is beginning at verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, and you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard him asked this, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age as in the age to come. So, as I said, very famous passage, but it's one I think that is often misapplied. People have heard it as Jesus being particularly down on rich, wealthy people. But restricting it to just about wealth is to miss a bigger and far more important issue that Jesus is getting at here. He is, as always, in fact, speaking to the heart, not simply to the wallet. And in this case, he is speaking to a divided heart. So Luke describes this man as a certain ruler in verse 18 and as being very wealthy in verse 23. And in Matthew and Mark's version of the story, he is described as young. And I think it's fair to say that combining youth with money and power doesn't necessarily lead itself to a deep sense of humility or lack of self-importance. When we were in London, our kids went to the local school. It was a public school, state school run, but it was a very good school. And like all good schools that are well run, um, it attracted a lot of very wealthy people who bought all the um, property around in the area in order to get their kids into the school, uh, which happens now and again. Uh, but it meant that it was very diverse in terms of the people at the school. And some friends of ours who were kind of middle class, but they weren't particularly wealthy, they had um, their son uh, had a play date and um, the friend of theirs who came over was extraordinarily um, wealthy. His family were, uh, and he came to their little apartment, and the first thing this little boy said was, um, uh, excuse me, but why don't you have your own front door? I mean, why don't you? Why, why don't you have your own front door? And then he said, you've only got two bedrooms. Where does your nanny sleep? <laughs> we loved him. 
Now, of course, uh, everyone who is young and rich and powerful doesn't necessarily have a uh, kind of very blinkered view on life, but often they do. And really, the point is, from this conversation, it seems like this particular young, rich ruler uh, has a fairly high view of himself. He asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is short to the point, and let's be clear, rude reply. He doesn't even actually get straight on to the answering the question. Suggests that Jesus thinks this guy needs to be taken down a peg or two. Good, Jesus says. Why do you call me good? He's saying your flattery and your money and your influence, it may work on more impressionable people, but it's not going to work on me, Jesus. And also Jesus is saying, but as you well know, God is the only one who's good. So if you think your idea of goodness is going to help you, let me just tell you from the outset that it really isn't. So it's your standard Jesus Christ, Son of God, slap down. Have you noticed how so rarely Jesus actually answers the question? It's so annoying. Jesus just answered the question, but he doesn't. Well, I think the reason is twofold. Firstly, because Jesus sees that so often the questions we ask of him aren't really the heart of what's going on for us, as is the case here. And he really wants to minister to our hearts. And secondly, he knows that if he were to answer them, it might not actually really help us very much at all, as is also the case here. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus does not care about your questions. He does more than you will ever know. He is unconditional in his love. He is without distraction when it comes to you, the apple of his eye, the most important person in the room. You know when Jesus walks into the room and everyone wants his attention, what he does is he pushes them out of the way and he makes a beeline for you because you are the one he wants to talk to always. He doesn't care about anyone else apart from you. So he deeply cares about your questions. But, and I haven't got time to go into this, Sometimes God doesn't get what he wants because of the time that we live in. Because the world is corrupted and it doesn't work as it's supposed to. It's not how he planned it. It's not how he wants it. But he doesn't always get what he wants. That's not to say, though, that his kingdom is not here, ready to bring all its goodness and beauty and uh, change and transformation to you and the world, and that's what he's wanting to do. And so, very simply, this is a talk for another time, but very simply, if you are banging your head against a wall with all these things you're asking and asking and asking, maybe it's because he wants to, ask, he wants to answer another question. Maybe where you will see such extraordinary things that that previous question might not matter so much anymore. Anyway, that was another talk. That was all for free. And that is actually the case for this rich young ruler. But before we get onto that, let me explain why this isn't really about wealth. Verse 24, how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This is a metaphor, not for difficulty, but for impossibility. The camel is the biggest thing that anyone knew about. It's a camel, it's huge, and the eye of a needle is pretty much the smallest thing anyone ever knew about. So what Jesus is saying is, that camel is not going to fit through that eye of a needle, is it? It's like a snowball's chance in hell. It doesn't fare very well. So he's not saying it's difficult, he's saying it's impossible. 
So does that mean, therefore, for Jesus, that there are no rich people in his kingdom? Well, not if Abraham, David, Joseph of Arimathea, Zacchaeus, and countless others who were fabulously wealthy are anything to go by. What Jesus is saying is that it's impossible for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. Who then can be saved? The disciples say. Jesus replies, well, what's impossible with men is possible with God. He doesn't say what's impossible with rich people. He says what's impossible with anyone, you, me, and everyone else. It's impossible, absolutely impossible for us to enter, but it's not impossible for God because the invitation and the access into his glorious kingdom is done by him alone, and we just have to receive it. That's what he's saying. So given that, why then does Jesus concentrate here on rich people? Well, because for this particular rich person, This rich young ruler, money really is the issue. Jesus comes to bring living water. That's what he's come for all of us. Living water flowing through us, bringing us to life, bringing us into the people that we were always supposed to be. That's what he wants to do, to pour it out on us. But this rich young ruler has been looking for that living water in the security of wealth. For the woman at the well, the famous passage uh, in John's Gospel, it's different. She's been looking for it, not in money, but in for men. And Zacchaeus, who we considered last week, he, despite his huge wealth, has not been looking for it in money. He actually isn't looking for it at all because he is so miserable, so lacking in self-worth, so turned in on himself. He doesn't even think it's his, like anyone is going to give it to him anyway. And Jesus sees him and goes, you're not worthy. You don't think you're worthy, but I'm giving it to you anyway because that's the kind of Jesus I am. That's the kind of God I am. But But for this guy, it's money. And money particularly can have an unwieldy power and influence over us. That's why Jesus is particularly aggressive when he talks about it. He personifies it as mammon, like a god. That's the kind of power we're talking about. But let's take a step back, shall we? Because for all his posturing and self-confidence, and I've done all of that, There is, at least in part, a openness from this young man. And Jesus notices it. it. Jesus notices it. There we go. When Jesus finally answers the young man's question, he does so by quoting the Ten Commandments. Verse 20, you know the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, blah, 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 blah. This is very strange on the part of uh, Jesus and the question for two reasons. Firstly, it is a direct contradiction of what Jesus has just said a few verses earlier about what it is to inherit the kingdom of God. He tells a story. There is this Pharisee who goes to temple to pray, and there is this tax collector who goes to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee gets to the temple and goes, I thank you, God, that I'm not like all these terrible people, particularly this tax collector, that I am, in fact, someone who has kept all the commandments. And I thank you that that makes me acceptable to you. The tax collector, on the other hand, keeps his head bowed down at the ground, doesn't even look up, says, I'm a terrible sinner, please have mercy on me. And Jesus' point is, it's the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who inherits the kingdom of God. So, it's very strange that he would then say, oh, by the way, you need to do all these things that I just said that you shouldn't do in order to inherit the kingdom of God. Because Jesus doesn't actually think that. Secondly, it's strange in that this question is a question that everyone would know the answer to. 
Every good Jewish boy or girl, having grown up, would have known the answer to this question, how do I inherit the kingdom of God? Their rabbis, their parents, everyone would have told them over and over and over again, what you do is you honor God and you steer clear of sin. That's what you do. Everyone knows the answer. So why then does this man ask Jesus, and why does Jesus reply just as everyone would have expected? Well, I think because the man asks this because, as he says, he's done all of that. I've done all of that. And what he's saying behind that is, I've done all of that, and it's not enough. I need more. I need something more. And he's hoping from Jesus that Jesus will tell him a different answer. Uh, one of the things that we've noticed, as you may have noticed if you've not met me before, I'm not American, um, but I am I'm slowly becoming American, and I'm enjoying the process. But one of the things coming from Europe to this country that has struck us most is just quite how much of an influence Christianity and the church has in this country. I know we're in like Los Angeles, and it's you know it's it's um, evil. <laughs> um, I know it's very secular and non-Christian, but still here, much more Christian influence than, say, in London. Uh, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily a good thing. But what it would mean is that if we were to go out on the streets now and ask even your average Los Angelite, secular, evil, terrible person, heathen type, if we were to go out there and say, what would Christians say is the way to inherit the kingdom of God? or to eternal life, even if we were to ask them, because there's such an influence, I think they would all probably be able to say, well, I think Christians would say something about receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior and praying a prayer of uh, repentance and then believing, something like that. Most people would say that. If we went to the UK and asked that question, they'd say, what are you talking about, bruv? What, like, shut up, like, leave me alone. Don't talk, you don't talk to strangers, go away. That's what they would say. Here, though, very different. And of course, millions of people across this nation would say the same thing. They've said those things, and they're a Christian, and that's it. But let's just be completely honest with ourselves for a second now, shall we? Because I've talked to enough people here, a lot of people would say, yeah, I have done that. I've done that, and I've been a good Christian boy or girl, pretty much. I've done all the things I'm supposed to do. I went, went to church, ticked the box, I've done it, I read my Bible, I say my prayers. But I'm not entirely sure I'm experiencing the life that I was promised. This life of joy and fulfillment and meaning and purpose. Isn't there something more? This is exactly what is going on with this rich young ruler. In the midst of his pride and his arrogance, there is genuine openness. He's asking the same old question that everyone knows the answer to, not because he wants to hear how great he is or not just because he wants to hear how great he is and how he's fulfilled everything. He wants to hear that there is something more. And he senses in this strange Jesus-type figure, this person who looks like no other, who speaks with authority, who does miracles, he looks at him and he thinks, you, you might have a different answer. And so I think the reason that Jesus replies with the standard bog answer, bog answer, bog standard answer, 
fulfill all the commandments is because he's testing this man and going, do you really want to know? Do you really want to know? And when the guy says, yep, done all those, then Jesus goes, great. I will take that invitation. You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in, the, in heaven. Then come follow me. Boom. You want to play in the big league? Right. Welcome to the big league. Here it is. That's what Jesus is saying. The really important part of this, and I need you to hear this, is the then come and follow me bit. It isn't the sell everything bit. If it were, Jesus would say that that is the requirement for everyone to enter his kingdom, which he never does. The sell everything bit, though, is important for this particular man because that is the thing that is going to stop him from actually entering the kingdom of God and being able to follow him. Without his, his heart will remain divided between Jesus' kingdom and his own kingdom of wealth and power. So he will never experience the thing that he really needs, the living water flowing through him, the never-ending love, the meaning and purpose, his life actually making sense, his life having a direction, his life being the life that he senses it to be. So he wants it enough to ask the question, but he doesn't want it enough to actually do what it will take. Because Jesus is after a non-divided heart. That's what he wants. Because he knows that when our whole hearts are after him, everything else will flow. Our money, our affections, our time, our relationships, all of that will flow on afterwards. And there's very good reason for this. Uh, John Calvin, French theologian at the time of the Reformation, I really don't like him. He has got a lot to answer for. However, however, he has said a few things now and again that are quite good. All right. But I don't like him. But he did say this. Our hearts, they are perpetual factories of idols. There, are, there they are, sitting in our chests, churning out idols. And an idol is not some sort of little um, fabric, fabric, uh, fabricated thing that sits on a mantelpiece. An idol is anything that takes our time and affection. Anything that we don't think we could live without. Anything that we actually worship. We're all created as worshippers. That's how we are created, and we will find anything and everything to worship. And an idol can be anything. They are not always negative in and of themselves. In fact, often they are very good things in and of themselves. In God's kingdom, for instance, money is value neutral. So is success, so is fame, so are nations and flags and nationalities and races. Sex in God's kingdom is good. So are relationships, so is work. But any or all of these things can become an idol for us when we give them a position that they do not deserve, when we start, being able to, when we start uh, not being able to stop ourselves from going after them at all costs, when we start worshipping them. But the problem with all idols is none of them None of them, either individually or collectively, can actually supply what we most crave. 
Money, for instance, can offer the illusion of comfort and security and health and fun and freedom, but it's not powerful enough to give us satisfactory experiences of any of those things. And so, because it's not enough, we keep going after it, or we go after something else, and we go and we go and we go and we go and we go. And what that does is it brings the exact opposite of all the things that we so desperately need. What we get instead is anxiety and depression and self-importance and greed. Jack Higgins uh, who is a best-selling author. I think he might have died, actually. He wrote, let's just say some books, because <laughs> I can't remember. But a best-selling author, hugely successful. Uh, he wrote some things. Where eagles dare? Possibly. Who knows? Anyway, he was asked at the height of his fame, when he was very successful, top of the New York Times bestseller list, over and over again, what he wished he'd known when he first started out. He said this, that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. Come, follow me, Jesus says, and I will give you treasures in heaven. No one, not one person, will not fail to receive many times as much in this age, right here, right now, and in the age to come. He's not talking about uh, monetary um, gifts. He's just talking about the kingdom of God, life of purpose and meaning and goodness. It's what we're made for. So then, his kingdom or our own little fiefdom. That's what he's after and that's what he's coming for. So then, to end, how should we apply this? If you've been to a church for any length of time, you will have heard numerous, numerous talks on the dangers of going after money, sex, and power. It tends to be those things, maybe success as well, because we're in LA. Money, fame, sex, and power. Those are the talks you've heard a million times over. I'm not going to do one of those. Not because it's not important, but because I want to talk about something else. And what I want to talk about is a much more subtle but similarly powerful idol. And that's the idol of freedom. What? Surely freedom is a great thing. Of course it is. It is a great thing. But it's not the greatest thing. And anything can become an idol, even great things. Anything that we worship will necessarily be given a power and authority over our lives it does not deserve. And when it does, it starts distorting things very, very quickly. And I wonder if we, and particularly I am talking to Christians, particularly in this country, have actually fallen for worship some, worshipping something that does not deserve our worship. But why talk about freedom at all? Well, number one, I've got the microphone, and I want to. And number two, less than two weeks ago, very close to here, 12 people were shot in another mass shooting. Another one. And it's very difficult not to see that this mass shooting, like all the other mass shootings before, has some sort of intrinsic connection with the extremely high value that we put on freedom particularly, or not just freedom, but a certain type of freedom, freedom for people to carry guns. And thirdly, because I don't hear many churches talking about this, 
There is a Christian vacuum here. And in all vacuums, what they allow is anyone to enter into them and then to have a disproportionate power in what they then say because no one else is talking about it. So let me ask you this question. Do you want to hear what Sarah Palin has to think about freedom or do you want to hear what Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, wants to talk about freedom? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in Nazi Germany who stood up to them from before, during and after, was tortured and was ultimately executed by the Nazis, said this. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. And fourthly, because surely, surely, it is the church and Christians' remit to talk about life and death matters. Surely that's what we actually have some authority and responsibility to address. Surely. That's our kind of thing, right? Life, death, violence, hurt, pain, those things. Good. So let's, for all those reasons, talk about freedom, shall we? When it is given disproportionate value and position in our hearts, when we worship it, it becomes idolatry. Now, just because I know that there will be people going, please shut up, I don't want to make political points here. You'll have heard countless arguments about gun reform and the Second Amendment. They, those are for people far better qualified, far more in touch with what's actually going on than me to make. So I'm not making political points. I believe that ultimately the church, us, the people of God, should first and foremost be a voice to our own. Our primary concern not our only concern, but our primary concern is not how people who don't believe what we believe live their lives. It's about how we who believe what we believe actually live our lives so that what we believe infects every single area of it. That's the point. Jesus came to his own people. The New Testament is written exclusively to the church, not to the world. So let's get our own house in order before we start lecturing everyone else about how they should live their lives. Agreed? Good. The goal is that when we do that, we become a community of such joy and peace and justice and goodness shaped by the supernatural transformative power of the Holy Spirit, so countercultural, so refreshingly and positively, unlike anything else you have ever seen, that we find that the world looks on us and goes, wow, those Christians, they've actually got something. I want a bit of that. This is what God meant when he called his people, the people of Abraham, to be a blessing to all the surrounding nations. It's what Jesus meant when he called his people, centered around him, to be salt and light in the earth. Those are positive things. That's what the church is supposed to do. People are supposed to see it and go, that's amazing, I want some of that. The problem, as I now see it, is the world looking in on the Christians. And let's just be honest, shall we? particularly the white evangelical middle-class Christians, is they see our love for money and power. They see our attitude towards other races, towards immigrants, the LGBTQ community, women, and yes, guns. And the rest of culture goes, I want nothing to do with that. 
And it's not because they're resisting Jesus. It's because they're saying, if that's what Jesus is like, he stinks, and so do all the attitudes of the people who follow him. So really, what I want to do, and if you're not a Christian, you can just ignore all this. But if you call yourself a Christian, what I want to do is talk to us not about politics, but about our hearts. I love this country. I think it's a beautiful country. And can I just say this at the outset? This is not in any way um, to be disrespectful to those people who have given their lives in service in the military of this country. We should all be hugely grateful and say thank you to them whenever we see them. And I thank you if you are someone who's done that or your um, close relatives have. But Jesus is not primarily con concerned with nations and borders. He's concerned with kingdoms, two kingdoms in particular. His kingdom, where the spirit of his living God dwells amongst his people wherever they are, wherever across the world they are, and the kingdom of darkness, in which idolatry is the founding principle. His kingdom is defeating, has defeated, and will defeat the kingdom of darkness. But we're not there yet. We live between the times. And the whole earth and people in it groan. And we wait. And so until it does, just so you know, I do believe that guns probably are a kind of necessary evil. And again, I'm not talking about hunting. Let's just leave hunting on the side. Go and hunt. Great. But guns probably are in this time a necessary evil. But let's just be clear. They are an evil. These are machines designed with one purpose, to bring death. Jesus is the Lord of life. And he has gone to extraordinary lengths, dying on a cross, to defeat death, not for people to then propagate death in all its hideous guises. He has come to get rid of it. So there will be no guns in God's kingdom when it fully arrives. But in this in-between time, the problem is we haven't treated guns as a necessary evil. We've worshipped them as a god. And a result, particularly as we've worshipped the freedom that we think we need, that freedom has wielded inordinate power over our lives. It promises freedom. All it delivers is fear. Idols don't release us, they enslave us. And so any life that is lost on this particular altar of idolatry, Jesus weeps over it and will continue to weep over every subsequent one as we should too. As Christians, we're called to something much bigger, much greater much more transformative, freeing, and powerful. And I will finish with this. Jesus is your defender. Jesus, the person who created the moon, the stars, the universe, 
the one in whom there is infinite power. He will defend you. And Jesus, he is your liberator. You want freedom? He's the only one who can give it. If the sun sets you free, Jesus declares, you're free indeed. Nothing else comes close. It's why um, Hannah's father, my father-in-law, he's worked as a Christian missionary in China. Um, he's gone through the Cultural Revolution there. Right now, the authorities are clamping down on Christians. So his emails are uh, read. People follow him. He's, um, uh, he's sort of intimidated. Churches are re regularly kind of raided by the authorities. He lives under no religious freedom whatsoever, and yet he knows freedom more than you would ever imagine because the Son has set him free. What this world is crying out for is to know true freedom. It's what we're longing for, all of us. But when you've experienced Jesus' freedom, nothing else will do. We, you, me, everyone here, we are the light of the world. So let us just cut off all those false idols, whichever one or whichever ones you are going after. Just cut them off, cut them off, cut them off. And go back to him, the one who will actually look after your heart, who will change your heart, who will empower you to speak truth, to speak peace and love and goodness to a world that is just swirling all over the place. Isn't the world in a terrible spot right now? Doesn't it need people who are a bit like Jesus? Don't we need to be filled more and more and more with Jesus' love and power so that we can actually stop all the swirling and make this place better again? The answer is yes. Good. Thank you for listening to me rant. Um, complaint emails to hannah at bread.church. Let's sing a song, shall we? And then I would like to pray for people. At the end of all our services, and this is sort of like the informal close, but we'll sing this song. At the end of all our services, we pray for people. You may never have been prayed for in this way before. What we do is we ask people to just come to the front here. You just close your eyes so that you're not distracted by what's going on. Open your hands just as a sign of being open. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. We come to the front here, and then what we're asking is the Holy Spirit to meet us, just as Josh was saying earlier in worship. Because we think that this Christian thing, it's not really about how hard we try. It's really not about that at all. It's about how much we let the Holy Spirit change us. And so in order for the Holy Spirit to change us, we need to let him. None of us like doing that. We like keeping control. We like being in charge of our own destinies. We like holding everything together. So the idea of giving someone else control, mm, not too sure about that. But let me ask you, how's it going, you running your own life? Wouldn't you like the one who knows you better than you know yourself, who loves you more than you love yourself, who thinks the world of you, wouldn't you love him to actually just have your heart? To heal all the pain? To set you free? To fill you with power and purpose? You deserve it. So that's what we'll do. People will come to the front and then we'll just pray for them. Let's stand and sing this song.
And if you have to go, you have to go. Who knows what the time is? Oh, look, we've still got five minutes. Um, kids will need to be picked up if you've got children. Please pick up your own children, not someone else's. That's when it gets messy. What I suggest we do, as this song plays, you can sing the lyrics if you like, but you don't have to. I would just ask the Holy Spirit to meet you. You could probably just close your eyes so you're not distracted. This is between you and him. If there's things that have come up you just want to leave behind, just leave them in your seat. Come here and we'll pray for you. Good, good.